Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. Glad to be back. Yeah, there's a lot to catch up on in this 88th episode as we count down to 100 slowly. (laughs) 88, oh my goodness, that's a lot. Yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there. (laughs) So we have some catching up to do before we talk about... Do we have any listeners yet? We do. We do have listeners, and we're very grateful. I mean, besides, like, my wife and yours, or? Uh, my wife does not listen. Oh, okay. She has no <laughs> I don't idea. Think mine does either. <laughs> <laughs> she has no idea what we talk oh. about. She does, she does know that we talk. She just doesn't know what we talk about. Exactly. I think my wife's like, oh, I've heard you talk about this before. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. Randy, three quick questions as we um, jump into this before we talk about how messy history can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you are wrapping up. You're in the coming to the final semester of being a, a, an actual professor with an actual uh, classroom as you transition out of that more formal environment. Do you have any are you are you being reflective? Are you being is it uh, a sentimental time? Oh, yes. Um, I, in fact, I sit around about nine hours a day and just contemplate sort of with my, my hand up with fisted and my chin, kind of like the thinker, you know. Or, yes. Uh, no, I, yeah, I, I actually have been doing a lot of contemplation about this. It's a big change. I mean, this is like the one of the most major moves you make in your life is retirement. And our goal has always been, though, to go from uh, teaching in the classroom, because I, I never actually ever meant to teach in the classroom, right? Right, right. That was sort of what happened when we lost our farm in Kentucky due to the pressure from the white supremacist people. Um, then I had to basically find another job and get more support. And so, but our goal has always been to teach not in the classroom, mm. uh, to teach in a more pedagogically informed Native American way, if you will. Uh, In other words, um, sitting in a circle, sitting around a fire, having conversations rather than sort of a more academic uh, factory style learning that uh, we have to adapt uh, to even get a hybrid version of that. So, So it's all about this transfer of methodology, if you will. And, uh, I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about um, what do I have to offer still? I've been, you know, it's as you go through a lot, I've been thinking about how do I spend more time with just my wife and I? Mm-hmm. This is a, well, like we were married and I was already a single dad and we've never been without kids. Uh, and I think at some point all our kids have like moved back with us. So um, it's sort of a, a, uh, well, yeah, a big time of reflection. Like, mm. like, how do we want to spend like the next really ten good viable years with each other? So, mm. um, and of course, vocationally, um, we want to keep teaching, but uh, there's a number of things that that have to go through to make that possible. Uh, we still have to build a building, which is the the biggest right yeah. now um, roadblock. So, do you call that building? Is the dream for it? Is it an education center or? A- Teaching center, what, what do you call that building if people want to? Well, because it, it has to be zoned as an agricultural building, but because we are a teaching farm officially, uh, we're calling it um, an agricultural and learning center. Oh, I love it. 
I love it. Learning center. That's good stuff. Yeah. Hey, speak, speaking of the farm, when you partner with the land to bring forth fruit and vegetables, what does August look like? Are you transitioning from to get ready for harvest or are you already in harvest? What does it look like? Well, this is a great thing about the Willamette Valley, right? You can actually grow things in the Willamette Valley all year long. So we are harvesting some things. We're harvesting, uh, you know, uh, uh, squash and different greens and broccoli and um, tomatoes. And, you know, uh, I think we're going to be harvesting beans and corn pretty soon, that kind of stuff. But then we're also harvesting seeds that, you know, we planted over the winter and now are coming to seeds from like radishes and parsnips and different things like that. But then we're also planting now. So this is the thing about um, Oregon farming. It's, it sort of goes on all year almost, oh. except for the very, you know, like uh, December and okay. January, you really just kind of like wait and eat stuff. But um, yeah, you can be planting and harvesting all year round. Uh, wow. It's, uh, not everything. There are only certain things that grow during certain weathers, right? So. Yeah. yeah, it's an incredibly fertile place. Uh, my wife is as a, a, a master gardener, and she just loves it. Like, she can buy exotic plants that you wouldn't think would prosper here. And, she, you know, she'll say, like, I, you can grow anything here, basically anything. Well, a couple things you can't grow that I want to grow. You can't grow avocados here. Oh, okay. And I'd love to love to grow avocados. So uh, we, we planted some things like white sage. Okay planted 10 plants and only one has survived. Um, we planted some uh, a, a, a Chinese fruit called yuzu, and we planted four of those. Well, one survived. We planted, planted pomegranates. Um, we planted olives. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, that you wouldn't think would be able to grow here that actually you can, but we're going to have to, we're starting to learn like, okay, we have to take special care during the winter time that they maybe cover them up so they don't get as much rain and they don't get as much, um, you know, of the, the coldness when it's really cold. So, so we're kind of learning as we go. Uh, but yeah, you can grow a lot of stuff here. Um, someone can tell me how to grow avocados here year round. I would sure appreciate that. Mm, all right. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. People can pre-order your book. You have a book coming out? Yeah, another one. So this will be my third book for 2022. This but this is, is a big one. A big yeah, fat this, one. Yeah, this, uh, this year has been a great year. You know, I had the, in January, I had uh, Becoming Rooted, which is doing really well. Um, and 100 Days of uh, Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Um, and, I, and I have, uh, yeah, that that's that's been doing really well i would love to see that thing you know uh, even even reach a tenth of the audience that uh braiding sweetgrass did because braiding sweetgrass is in the sort of the same genre if you will okay. except for hers is a whole book and mine is a uh, hundred different sort of uh, meditations yeah. Yeah. but it's similar um and uh, people who like braiding sweetgrass i think will like uh becoming rooted and then I had the indigenous theology in the Western worldview, where I sort of lay out my, my, the differences in the Western worldview and the indigenous theology and what the West can learn from us. And uh, that's actually doing pretty well, getting a lot of people saying a lot of good things about it. And uh, the big one is uh, coming up uh, September 1st. 
mission and the cultural other, a closer look. And uh, as one person has said, it's pervasive and cuts to the core of modern missions. And uh, it's quite a critique um, in very friendly language, not academic uh, necessarily. It's, I think there's enough uh, missiology talk in there that missiologists will be able to use it in their classrooms, but it's really not written for an academic audience. Okay. Um, that book should be interesting. It should quite... Uh, cause quite a, a sort of a, a yeah. weight across how we do mission and how we look at Christianity. And, uh-huh. and it's asking us to face ourselves in uh, the, this foundational, um, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal um, type view that mission was formed under, how it's affected what mission's all about and like, what did Jesus really teach then, you know? And so, um, you know, like my, my thing as a Baptist, you know, I was raised that what, what are Christians supposed to do after Christians get quote unquote saved? Well, they're supposed to save other people. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, it's just one, one vicious cycle, you know, it's like, you know, go tell other people and then they go tell other people. And then, and then pretty soon we all have this knowledge, right? Yeah, and that that's like about as far from what Jesus taught as you can get, and uh, and yet that's the pervasive um, thought in much of uh, yeah. certainly evangelical Christianity, but even in much of Christianity, it's like, well, you tell the story. Well, no, yeah. it's not. It's not just about telling the story, and and it's like, and where did Jesus tell the story from? Like, if anybody had a right to, like, you know. Uh, like take presumption at their place. Uh, it could have been Jesus, but he didn't. He sat at tables and he listened to people and he fed people and he and he um, tried to bring back this old Shalom uh, uh, Sabbath Jubilee uh, system and and reinstate that uh, in a in a new way. And so so what are we even about? Mm. Books. You know, really questioning not not just mission, but what are we even about as people who say they follow Jesus? Are we about the thing Jesus was about? I don't think so. You know, people who think about such things, they really point and say, you know, Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? Paul invented Christianity. Paul in the early churches invented Christianity. And that form that you talked about of once you get this knowledge, then you pass it on and you, then other people come to knowledge and then they pass it on that that form was created by Paul. And that that's the part of Christianity that is highly contagious or marketable or however you want to talk about that. But that the, 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 the content, the actual information, right. About Jesus doesn't come in that package, right? The, the packaging and the salesmanship that's an invention, a later invention by those who came after Jesus in that next generation, but that that wasn't Jesus's concern or mode. That was not how he did it at all. Yeah, we're just you know so far off, we don't even realize the reality that we're in. Yeah. And um, you know, this book's purpose is uh, hopefully to bring people back to uh, a uh, a different reality. Hey, you know what's been taking a lot of my time this summer is, um, well, besides biking and spending time at the coast, 
Yes. Because that's oh, where I like, see your posts and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's funny. I don't post much to social media, but people um, have let me know that they really enjoy, enjoy just seeing my adventures. And so those, I, if you just looked at my social media feed, you'd think that's all I did. But if you, you know, it's quite spaced out. I mean, I don't post about politics a lot or things going on in the news or like what I cooked for dinner or anything. But um, yeah, I do post some building stuff. That's right. Actually. So you, you probably know this, you know, cause you've had to build like, you know, barns and sheds and stuff, but you know, in the last 10 years, materials for construction have gotten so expensive. Well, yeah, in the last two years, they've doubled the price. Right, right. And then subsequently, because there's a, like a labor shortage and because, you know, you know with craftsmen and, and artisans down, the labor costs are through the roof too. Yeah. So if you can get somebody to find somebody to do the work, right? I'm actually thinking about changing careers, if I can be quite honest. I did not realize how expensive everything had got. So at the church that I serve at here, um, the building had fallen into a little bit of disrepair. And so we decided that we needed to fix a couple things up. For instance, the staircases on either side of the building were a little rickety. And you know, should there ever be an emergency, they weren't really that safe for like lots of people to exit at the same time. And so we thought we needed to rebuild those stairs and make them really solid. But we had no idea what lumber costs these days. We tried to build a couple raised beds for our community to be able to grow uh, vegetables in just on, on the side of our building so that the community could access that. And we actually donated to a group called Produce for People, which is a pretty great program around here. But when we went to build the raised beds and we found out how much even like one two by four costs, we couldn't believe it. So we literally like only built two raised beds instead of the four that we wanted because the wood was twice as much as we expected. Crazy. And then the big thing that happened is um, we needed to paint the building, the weather here between how wet it is and you know the sun and the mold and all of those ingredients um, things, you know, eventually fall apart. And so we needed to replace some of our siding and then we had to, you know, paint. So the whole thing sort of looked like it tied together and we just wanted to, it was time to do it. We hadn't done it in a really long time. So we got three bids for painters. Randy, we had never, ever expected that the numbers that might come back to us for those bids would be as expensive as they were. Yeah, welcome to my world. Right. This is this is why yeah, I'm I try to try to hire somebody. It's like, whoa, can't afford to do that. Yeah. It's wild. And so, like literally, we thought that it might cost us as much as thirty thousand dollars to do, right? The bid came back at eighty-two and eighty-six thousand dollars. Yeah. And one of the people we wanted to bid said, I'm not even going to give you a bid because the honest truth is I don't have the crew to take on a project this size. So even if I bid you say $95,000 and you took it, I couldn't satisfy. I couldn't actually show up and do the painting. Yeah. And that's, that's with any building trades right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize that this is like what's happening out there. So this is sort of my introduction to this. 
So we, obviously, we have a pool of volunteers to draw from. So we have been doing a paint crew this summer, but I've been in charge of the prep. So power washing, scraping, repairing the wood and priming it. And then other people come in uh, to do the, the most of the painting. But it has been an introduction and an education about the state of construction and just, you know, repair. I did not know that things were as odd out there that between the cost of the materials and the, the lack of labor or even the price of labor that doing any project at all has become in, incredibly prohibitive in its expense. Yeah. And, and you're lucky you got people out to give you bids because, you know, uh, you know, I might contact five people for bids and maybe get one who'll come out and give me a bid. Really? Yeah, that's pretty common right now. That is wild, wild stuff, man. Hey, you mentioned being out at the coast. Here's something I've been waiting to talk to you about. So while I was out at the coast, uh, we were staying at, you know, an Airbnb. Uh, this is for a family reunion. And uh, I'm always up super early in the morning. And so uh, I was walking around this house that we had rented and, you know, I was found some interesting reading materials. And, you know, I always like reading stuff that I normally don't have access to and just sort of broaden my horizons. And I found this article about a guy who is taking a journey from Missoula, Montana, all the way back to St. Louis, Missouri, as you taught me to say in the last episode, <laughs> uh, to follow the route of the Buffalo Soldiers. Oh, wow. And how they got from St. Louis all the way out to the Plains and then pass that to Missoula. Well, here's an interesting thing. And I wanted to pick your brain about this and, and just listeners so that you know, Randy and I have not talked about this at all. So I literally don't know how the next few minutes are going to go, but I just wanted to pick your brain about something. So, you know, growing up white in America, you know, there are lots of legends and, and heroic figures, you know, that you sort of have on the periphery of your radar, but you don't know a lot about, and you certainly don't understand all of the, the complicated dynamics of stuff. But I just knew that the Buffalo soldiers were like these soldiers of renown, right? They were just incredible warriors and had these amazing reputations and they were tougher than nails and sort of heroic figures of history. And so I'm reading, you know, this story and something seemed a little off to me. So I did a little research and uh, looked up these Buffalo soldiers and it turns out that it's a far more complicated story than I could have possibly imagined. So in the 1860s, after emancipation, some, the army, well, the Northern army, um, recruited and commissioned an infantry division that ended up becoming known as the Buffalo soldiers who were black soldiers. They were given an education, a uniform and $13 a month and three meals a day. That was the contract. And they were sent to the Western frontier 
uh, the territories. Um, one of their main assignments was to fight the Indian tribes, the, the Indian soldiers out west. Right. And, well, they were also protecting mail and protecting settlers and things like that. But yeah. Okay. And so the name Buffalo Soldier ended up coming from their opponents. The, the, their, na- their name came from the warriors that they were uh, fighting. And so some people think that it came from their appearance with the curly hair and, and the, the black. Uh, but others think that it was a sign of respect for. But the weird part was, is as this was portrayed, is the the value the you know the 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 part of the soldiers that was seen as being they were such tough good soldiers was because they were so um i one of the things i read said vicious but aggressive in their fight against native tribes and so i started thinking you know history is a very odd and complicated thing because these soldiers of renown and and to this day, it's sort of a compliment to call someone like a Buffalo soldier. That's like a way of saying like a really tough, you know, adversary. And it's like held up as this honorific, but to see it through the lens of the native tribes that they would have been fighting against And then also, but if you try and put yourself in those soldiers' position to be, you know, freed slaves and offered this job and then to go to work for the Northern Army, like it's a very complicated, complex history that I got to be honest, I don't quite know how to feel about it. So I just wanted to ask you, like, what do you know and how do you see it? And how do you think about this knot of history that gets presented to us in this cleaned up, sanitized package? <laughs> well, if they even talk about it, right? It's not really taught in schools, I don't think. You know, I didn't uh, really hear about it. Um, did, I mean, were you? Did you hear about it? I think so, but it was more of a you know, sort of the, the, these, these soldiers of renown, these uh, mighty warriors, you know, who um, came out of this terrible circumstance, but then, you know, made good by fighting on the side of right or something. I mean, I don't, you know, I was a kid. I don't know for sure how it was presented, but I definitely got the impression that like they were the good guys, like the best of the best. And you know, these unlikely heroes, but they proved how tough they were, you know, sort of thing. Okay. Cause yeah, I didn't, I didn't learn about that when I was in school, but um, mm-hmm. okay. So yeah, well, well, one, you can't talk about um, a full picture of native American history without talking about black folks. And you can't talk about a full picture of African-American history without t- talking about Indian folks mm. okay. um, because they are so inter entangled, intermingled, yeah. integrated in so many different ways. So a couple quick facts. Um, did you know that native Americans were actually the first uh, people in 
enslaved and chattel slavery in the Americas. Um, and that went on for, uh, oh, I, I forget exactly how many years, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe like over 100 years before West African chattel slavery was ever introduced. In the, and uh, Native Americans were often uh, sent from like the Carolina coast and uh, Carolinas and Georgia and, and different places like that down to um, the Bahamas in those islands uh, to uh, basically in Jamaica and other places to, um, to become slaves, right? And so, um, and then as black chattel slavery began to catch on, they, they, they married, intermarried, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's what you do. Uh, when you're put in the same kinds of situations. And so, um, and, and that's why uh, so many African-Americans in this country uh, do have uh, Native ancestry. Um, yeah. And uh, vice versa. Um, and then you also have this period of time pre-emancipation uh, where slaves were escaping, enslaved people were escaping uh, from the South and running to Creek and Cherokee and Seminole, especially Seminole and uh, um, Choctaw and Chickasaw reservations. Well, what were not reservations then, but just their home territories and yeah. being uh, integrated into the tribes. Um, and there are a number of, of, of uh, Seminole chiefs who actually were uh, either formerly enslaved or were mixed blood, um, African-American and Seminole. So you have that whole history, right? Yeah. And then now you have all these unemployed enslaved men, formerly enslaved men who didn't get their, you know, uh, 40 acres and a mule. Right. And have no way to make a living. And so now they've got to look in an opportunity, uh, comes to, and some of them were soldiers, uh, black soldiers during the Civil War in black units uh, for the North. Um, and uh, what do they do? Well, they've got to make a living. So, you know, uh, and, and where are you going to do it at? You know, so, so what are you going to do? You're going to join uh, the, what became known as the Buffalo Soldier, which, by the way, is, I believe, the only... Uh, I don't know what this other reason was, but the, but the reason they're called Buffalo soldiers is because of black men's faces. And when they started growing beards, it was curly like a Buffalo. Yeah. And so, um, so that reminded native people of Buffalo. That's why they're called Buffalo soldiers. So, um, and I know the Fort Gibson, um, Oklahoma, uh, just outside of Muskogee was one of the um, places where I don't, think it was the 10th cavalry maybe 47th i can't remember exactly but um one of the units was stationed i think there were three main units yeah it changed over time so it started with four and then and as they moved out then it became they condensed it down to two and but the numbering changed like the 15th and 19th for a while yeah and and they'll tell that story at fort gibson when you take a tour of historic fort gibson as well but um you know, here's the thing, and this is why history is complex, right? Um, you have a lot of Native people who worked also for the Army, for the Cavalry. Uh, Native scouts, you know, were employed 
for the same reasons, you know, especially during um, as uh, treaties were being made and people were put on reservations and people were starving. It's like, well, how do I make a living? Right. Well, I'm I, I'm I fought in wars, so maybe I can become a scout. And so you have a lot of I mean, just about every tribe, regardless of what they say, uh, use scouts for the army to to scout against you know, people who might have traditionally been their enemies. It's sort of like the, the, uh, uh, what's that saying? The, uh, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my wife has some very famous scouts, uh, you know, Curly, uh, who's a crow scout, the youngest of the Custer's crow scouts who scouted against uh, the uh, uh, Lakota people um, uh, is her third great grandfather. Uh, she also has other uh, people who were war chiefs and others like Washakie and her, uh, uh, another third great grandfather who was the sun tail or rabbit tail he's called, who was a scout. Um, and they, the Crows and the Shoshones uh, scouted under general, uh, I think it was Crook or Miles, can't remember in the Rosebud campaign. And that's how uh, they held back crazy horse and his people. And this is right before the little bighorn uh, battle. And, uh, and then uh, all of a sudden crazy horse and his people found about little bighorn and they, they all left. Um, first time the Shoshones and crows had ever worked together. They were formerly enemies. Um, but it's complex. Pawnees, Pawnee Scouts, um, Sac and Fox, uh, just about all the tribes. Um, Apaches, you know, you had some Apaches who were scouting against other Apaches. Um, so, yeah, it's very complex. Um, it's not just this sort of like, uh, um, you know, very easily distinguishable binary choice of good guys, bad guys kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's uh, And so, uh, yeah. So these Buffalo soldiers were out to make a living, you know, they weren't doing it because they hated Indians sure. and they certainly probably weren't doing it because they saw the a future, you know, I mean, maybe they saw a little future for themselves out in the settlements, but they knew the kind of hard times that would come. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't sort of for the same reason of settlement. I don't think, uh, although that may have been part of it, but, but it was, um, you know, it was to make a living. You know, and why do the people join the army now? Yeah. You know, most of them, they don't have anything against people in uh, Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, um, it's not about this whole, you know, propaganda idea of freedom that America likes to present as it's, you know, sort of banner and hiding the, you know, the quest for oil and world domination and all the rest. They go because they're trying to make a living. They got bills, they got debts, they got family. And how does a young person make it? Now, these days it's harder and harder. So, so many join the military, you know. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, in so many contemporary stories, you know, I really have learned, you know, follow the money. Like if you're not talking about the financial aspect of something, you're not getting the whole story. Whatever somebody's telling you, it's not the whole story. In fact, it might be uh, covering up the real story, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But when it comes to history, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting how often you can tell a whole story about something and not mention the economics. I was reading a thing a couple months ago about, um, you know, the history of like, it was like a, a fur trading and how religion, the missionaries would piggyback on the back of say the Hudson Bay company or whatever it was and how that they used those same inroads to go and how the missionaries, but it was in defense of, I was reading, it was a conservative thing and it was in defense of the missionaries that like they, they didn't have any economic concern. They were just, you know, trying to preach the gospel and make converts working for Hudson Bay. <laughs> right, right. No, that, that, so I'm reading it and I keep thinking to myself, you're not telling me the whole story here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I mean, that might be a story for another day, but my wife's whole ancestry has to do with these uh, fur people and, um, uh, you know, native people who work for the fur companies who were Catholic uh, deacons and that kind of thing. And, you know, spreading religion at the same time working. And yeah, so that, that's Edith's whole history here. Is, uh, uh, you know, we do people are pretty yeah. famous. Huh? You know, we do the same thing now. My favorite example is every, you know, September, uh, especially back when I was teaching, I would, you know, ask students, you know, obviously September 11th and, and the attacks of that day. And I will say like, so what, what were the buildings called that were attacked? And people say, you know, the Twin Towers. And I'll say, no, that's their nickname. What was it called? World Trade. Trade. Yeah. yeah. If you try and tell the story of 9-11 without incorporating World Trade and the finances of America's foreign policy in military military involvement in other countries. If you don't tell a story about world and trade, what we do is we sanitize it by calling it the twin towers. And then we never have to talk about what may have been the main point of contention, which was world trade. And then obviously the Pentagon being the other target right, with the military it's amazing how even in just recent history, how we love to wash away both the economic and the military side and make sure that the story focuses on the other aspect that makes us look like, right, a little more innocent or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what got uh, Ward Churchill in so much trouble and got him basically uh, to become the infamous figure that he is now and in, in persona non grata in academia and everywhere else is that he, he used the line from Malcolm X and, and he said um, two things. He said, the chickens have come home to roost. You know, oh, I like, remember that. Yeah. And he said that, uh, that that world trade center was full of little Eichmann's. In other words, uh, Eichmann from the uh, propaganda machine of, uh, of Hitler. Right. And uh, yeah, people didn't like that. Uh, no, I still don't like that. Got that him hunted down and clubbed basically by, you know, metaphorically clubbed oh, by man. academia and tribes and everybody. You know, it was like, oh. yeah, I can see that. It still makes me uncomfortable just to hear it. I get very disjointed and just in discomfort there. 
Yeah, so I think there was different talk going around at the time uh, when when that happened than what was happening in white circles, different talk in native circles. And I can't tell you how many times native people said, I heard people say, and uh, something like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry this happened. This was horrible. You know, I don't want anybody to die, but now they see how we feel. Boy. Because this was the kind of attacks that we suffered, right? Massacres, mm. starvations, et cetera, et cetera. So um, these are all the dirty tricks that were played by the United States against the Native America. Oh, gosh. Wow. Well, listen, in our next episode, I want to tell you something else I found, and it's going to tie in a little bit. I want to talk to you about if you oversimplify history, you actually can tell an untrue story that by oversimplifying, you can actually make it untrue. I found an amazing sort of an explanation. what mythology does? Oh, yes. It can be how things are mythologized. Yeah, so I talk about the American myth a lot. Oh. Um, You know, um, D.L. Mayfield also wrote that book about the, I think it's uh, American Dream, maybe, or American Myth. Um, That was pretty good. Uh, So, yeah, let's let's talk about that next time. All right. So that'll be episode in the next few times. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be episode 89. And then for episode 90, we need to talk about your book because it'll be coming out soon. Okay. Sounds great. Well, listener, thank you. We would be very interested in your thoughts, your comments, your questions, your concern, your <laughs> pushback, or even correction. We know, you know, when we're talking off the cuff, we probably got some details wrong. So, but we also would be interested if you have any historical things from your area that sort of would fit in this category of really complicated stuff that you might have trouble sorting out. We would be interested if there's anything in your backyard that would would fall into this umbrella of history. Yeah. And, and you know, there's that book, Lies Across America and Lies My Teacher Told Me, those two books. Yeah. Uh, and this is all about history and mythologizing history. Have you, do you have those books? I have them. No. Yeah, Lice, he first he wrote uh, I forget his name but he wrote uh, lies my teacher told me huh? about history and then he wrote lies across America which is basically all of our signs that bear to you know witness to the myths that tell a different story than what really happened right <laughs> actually this all right so that ties in this is the the story I want to tell you for next time is I found a road a sign on the side of the road that explained like of this point when it was quote unquote discovered, meaning just a couple hundred years ago, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't think that's when it was discovered. I'm pretty sure. And that's one of the things when I talk about reparations, I talk about um, creating uh, new committees and creating new signs across America to commemorate. Like historical markers. Right. Exactly. The changing all our historical markers. Oh, gosh. Interesting. Interesting. We live by our myths. I mean, we live by our myths. That's what we are raised with. That's what are so integrated into our life. And we feel that we must have integrity to those myths in order to be patriotic. But much much of those myths are lies. Not to turn political in our final minutes together, but I think this is part of why we're having such problem in our democratic system right now and our congressional politics is because the myth is being both called into question 
and modified in real time and it's buckling. Right. And I, I, I think you're talking about that wokeism, Bo. <laughs> no, no, the all woke now. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the, the being asleep ism. Okay. The dream ism. Can we can we stop using woke and just say I came to the realization? Sure, that, sure. <laughs> I I awake. It's funny how these words get you know become taboo now. It's like we can't use critical race theory. Right. We can't use woke. We can't use. Uh, um, uh, what's the word? Intersectionality. Uh, you know, because all these people now, right? So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how quickly something will come on to the the sort of the national conversation awareness and immediately is demonized and you know marginalized i can't believe how quickly this happens now yeah crazy hey go listener feel free to post on this on facebook you can post on the website the episode show notes you can email us, connect at piecingitalltogether.com. We want to thank our Patreon supporters for their ongoing support. We say thank you. And um, yeah, we are going to be interested in your feedback of this episode. Peace out. <laughs>